This is Intertractional, an exploration of Star Trek through an intersectional feminist lens. Star Trek is both a reflection of our society and an aspiration for our future. The stories it tells shape our world. Intersectionality explores intersecting forms of oppression and how they affect individuals with compound identities. Star Trek is for feminists. Right. <laughs> Perfect. Here we are. Hi, Ryan. Hi, Becca. Hi, Intertrekkies. Welcome to Intertrectional. What's the topic for today? Today, we are talking about queerness and kink in the mirror universe. I, I'm so excited. Yeah. September is uh, Bisexual Pride Month. <laughs> It's kind of a coincidence that we're doing this right now because I feel like we, we have talked, we've sort of kicked this topic around for a few months. Um, but I was like, oh, great timing. <laughs> like, yeah, that's a win. It was meant to be. Yes, we're going to be talking a lot about bisexuality specifically in the way that it is portrayed in the mirror universe and by extension in the Star Trek universe. But before we get into all that, I really want to do a little bit of. What have we been watching? Because um, I have a whole rant that I it's like have to get out about the Suicide Squad. Oh, yeah. Here, spoiler alert. I'm going to talk about... I don't know that I gave away any like major plot points for the Suicide Squad, but spoiler alert nonetheless. So tell me about the Suicide Squad. Right. So... This is the new, like, James Gunn vehicle. And that is the reason that I watched this movie. So a lot of, like, re people who write reviews about things on the internet were like, this is James Gunn's best work, firing on all cylinders, like, reimagining the whole DC quagmire that's been happening for the last decade. Okay, first of all, that's impossible because he did Guardians of the Galaxy, which yes. is one of the best sci-fi films of the last 20 years. Accurate. Continue. <laughs> so. And like I part of my problem with this the Suicide Squad movie is it like retroactively makes me question my love of that film. Oh god. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm okay. like no, it's one of my favorite movies of all time, Guardians of the Galaxy. So, The Suicide Squad starts with Everybody here is going to die and just like goes at that level of joyless bleakness for the rest of the movie. I don't understand why they have like chosen to go in this route of just like. Just everything is terrible. So let's shoot guns at it. Like, I oh. I don't know. I guess that's the trend in filmmaking these days. But it, I hate Hated it. So me and my brother were watching it together and there was several moments where both of us just kind of like groaned in agony watching like somebody's skull being sliced diagonally and then it just like slides off and you see the brain part mm. and like beheadings and just... You know, some, sometimes, like, a lot of gore feels earned in a film, and it, like, works artistically. In this case, it just felt 
nauseating. Mm. I'm like upset by it. Another reason that I watched this movie is that the guy who plays Takeshi Kovach in the first season of Altered Carbon is in it, and he is very attractive, oh. and he gets almost nothing to do. Oh. I'm like, what's the point? So not not the new Captain America, but the other guy. Right. The other guy. Okay. The white guy, not the black guy. Yeah. It sort of features Harley Quinn like she 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 like pops in and out of the narrative and she does have a very pivotal like sex scene with the the small bad that they have to get through before they get to the big bad <laughs> um <laughs> oh, I'm still going to watch this damn it <laughs> yeah uh, call me afterwards and okay. I'll like I'll like be aftercare for you <laughs> it feels to me I have not watched all of her portray- all of her portrayals of Harley Quinn. Like I haven't seen the other Suicide Squad movie that's just called Suicide Squad rather than the Suicide Squad. And forgive me if I'm mixing those two up because they have the same name. One of them has a the in front of it. Stupid. But I did see Birds of Prey very recently, and it feels like she has a a much more limited role in the su- in the Suicide Squad, and she's. She's doing the baby voice, like the sexy baby voice, mm. the whole time. Mm. It's exhausting, and it's yeah. kind of gross and like infantilizing. And she's she's a, supposed to be a powerful woman character. Yeah, she has a PhD, right? <sighs> How? Uh, anyway, anyway. So then, the rest of the people who are like featured in this version of the Suicide Squad are uh, Idris Elba oh. and. I'm still going to see it. A very young woman. (coughs) And, like, two other people who are very forgettable. And I don't remember any of their names. It doesn't matter. Like, nobody... It's... Nobody's character is well-established. Idris Elba's character, his, his entire characterization is, I let down my daughter, so therefore I will be extra protective of this young woman character who's a surrogate for my daughter. Ugh. Gross. And basically everybody who has a characterization at all has a the that like level of depth kind of characterization. It's just a bad movie relentlessly for two hours and twelve minutes or however long it is. <laughs> and I don't watch it. Don't just don't. <laughs> oh my god. <sighs> yeah. Well, I'm not I'm not as into DC lately. No. By lately I mean like in the last in the last decade, but um yeah, I I did mildly like Birds of Prey despite the fact that it was very confusing narratively. And I'll probably watch it just cuz I'm like a completist. It's Birds of Prey is all right. I I only just watched it. So, I have I have been like actively or at least passively like boycotting the DC universe since Zack Snyder took the helm because I fucking hate him. Yeah, I know. Like (laughs) maybe not as a person, but as a director and as a producer and as an executive producer, I think that he touches movies and they become terrible. (laughs) And, And I had 
just chosen to not look up whether or not like wh- or like what involvement he has in this movie. And he's an executive producer, as it turns out. No surprise. Um, and so I broke my own rule. Yeah. And I regret it. Have you seen Wonder Woman 1984? Yes. Oh, God, that was terrible. Yeah, that movie was also bad. Yeah. Any movie that like centers male rape and treats it so casually. <laughs> but even even without even if you give that a pass, which you know you shouldn't, but even if you just gloss over that, the rest of the movie is terrible. The whole movie's terrible. Yeah. No, but it's a very upsetting follow-up to Wonder Woman, yes. which I did see. Yes. And is great. Yes. Wonder Woman is wonderful. Oh. So what what have you been watching? Maybe with less of a very terrible review that you would like to give it. <laughs> okay, so I mean, so spoiler alert. So I am just now watching Stargate SG One. I loved the Stargate movie as a little girl. My parents loved the Stargate movie. We had it on DVD. We watched it a ton of times. So Stargate, the series, this is a two-part review. Part one is that it's terrible. Part two is that I'm in love with it. (laughs) So just, um, especially season one, uh, Stargate, the series, is inherently colonialist um, from, like, just conception to how it's executed, every part of it is like colonialist, uh, racist, um, American imperialist. Uh, what's that other word? Not xenophobic. Um, jingoistic. <laughs> okay, this is embarrassing, but jingoism or jingoistic is a thing that, that I see and then I'm like, I can kind of understand from context what that means, but I don't actually know what it means. I might not either. Hold on. Nationalism in the form of aggressive and proactive foreign policy. Okay, yeah, I'm right. It's jingoist. Huh. I'm like, I don't yes. think I can define it, but I know what it means. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. It's like, so the premise of, of Stargate is it's basically Star Trek, no ships. Um, they walk through these gates they go and they go to other parts of the universe. The other premise of the movie is that all of Egyptian culture was actually uh, brought to Earth by aliens. Oh, so God. Egyptians who are African and brown people did not create their own culture. Aliens did. Mm. And they didn't do their own pyramids. Aliens did. And in general, I think that the ancient aliens um, theory, which in this case is is fiction, but, you know, actually gets, like, floated around in real life sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, Ancient aliens is offensive because the idea is that anything cool that exists on Earth that wasn't created by white people must have been made by higher level beings because we cannot imagine that non-white cultures created technology that we then lost, right? Or did some great feat, like built something really big. Like we build really big shit all the time now, but people are like, oh, how could they possibly have done it before the 20th century? How could they possibly have done it if it wasn't in Europe? It must have been aliens. 
oh, it's just so offensive and, and, and uncomfortable and, and racist. That is the premise of Stargate. All of that being said. <laughs> yes, now tell us why you like it. <laughs> let, let me finish why it's, why it's offensive. Oh, there's, okay, there's more? <laughs> it does a lot of things that, that Star Trek and other 90s shows try to do to be progressive and then fail at. Hmm. So just like any show that we've done where we're, we were like, oh, this is the show where they were trying to be feminist, but they missed the mark. Like Stargate has that episode too. Um, like there's an episode where they visit a planet that's all backwards and is like enslaving the women and the women have no rights and the women have to cover their faces, except all the humans on that planet are Asian. Great. <sighs> So in their attempt to call out sexism, they end up being racist. Right. Oh, goodness. There's also, similar to Star Trek, an episode where they visit, like, a Native American planet. All of that being said, by season two and definitely by season three, most of the extra levels of racism and sexism have fallen away. And there aren't episodes like that. And they start to visit planets that are, like steeped in Norse mythology or like medieval uh, Europe and whatever. And they're equally as primitive. So they start to have <laughs> primitive white people. Good. They, they start to encounter aliens who aren't just impersonating Egyptian gods, but are impersonating uh, white people gods too. So it gets a little better, I guess. And that way it's like, it's like equal across all races in aliens being responsible for all of earth culture um by seasons two and three uh so it's kind of is still insulting to humanity in general but stops being racist uh most of the time that being said it's you know incredibly entertaining there's a really smart lady character all of the characters are attractive it's good storytelling. They have great chemistry. Um, it's addictive. It's 90s serial uh, sci-fi, which, you know, if you are a Star Trek fan, you like that shit. Mm -hmm. You haven't seen it yet, maybe. So <laughs> there's a lot of it. There's like three series and three movies. You are not going to run out of this if you're addicted to TV like I am. Um, and you can just give yourself permission to be mad at it a lot and criticize it and then, I don't know, feel okay about watching it. <laughs> uh, all right. Let's talk about, let's talk about bisexual shit and queer shit <laughs> in the mirror universe. Yeah. All right. <laughs> oh my goodness. Ryan. Yes. What is the mirror universe? So, um, the mirror universe is a parallel universe, um, Probably one of, of many in the multiverse, but uh, the parallel universe that is closest to, quote, our universe in Star Trek that uh, Kirk and Uhura and I think the Doctor um, discover in the original series through a transporter accident. Yes. We then uh, return to it in Deep Space Nine, where we learn that their encounter with um, Spock, with Mirror Spock, because he's so logical and Spock is the best, caused him to, like, 
have a change of heart and be like, oh, we shouldn't be bad and convinces the Terran Empire. Saw the error of their ways. Thank you, Spock. And like became weaker, I guess. But meanwhile, like a bunch of other like the Klingons and the maybe Cardassians and like the Bajorans all formed an alliance sort of like the Federation, but not with humans in it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the basic conceit is every time you go to the mirror universe, you meet yourself, except they're kind of bad. And also everything that's going on there is worse. It's it's like the the darkest timeline. Right. Spock has a goatee. That's how you know that it's bad. Um, and then like Spock with goatee is effectively a trope in and of itself. So it's like. In uh, in community, there's an episode where they're in the darkest timeline, and Abed has a goatee. Right. <laughs> it's this this the concept of the mirror universe and kind of the concept of the darkest timeline grow out of Star Trek. They're not exclusively owned anymore by Star Trek. Like other science fiction has has run with this conceit. Yes, we get more of it fleshed out in. Enterprise and then and then also in Discovery in Discovery because it's like pre Kirk and Spock right so we're back in the Terran Empire at the height of their power like they have an emperor it's it's almost kind of set up like the Roman Empire of old and it's yeah it's like the cruelty is the point they have a technology called the agonizer it's meant to like you you put somebody in a box and then they are in pain for until you let them out of the box <laughs> which was invented by Dr. Phlox so they're borrowing it from Enterprise when it shows up in Discovery mm, got it anything else so, so I I just didn't rewatch the Enterprise episodes because I knew Number one, I would fall asleep, and number two, I found them boring when they did when I watched them the first time. Oh, I like. Them. Did you? What What else should we know about the mirror universe that's established in Enterprise? It's similar to the mirror universe in the original series, um, in that uh, everybody is like sexualized. So all of the the women have two piece uniforms that like heavily feature their midriff. Mm -hmm. um, plus, you know, low rise pants because it's the early two thousands. Right. Vulcans are indeed oppressed. So, um, what's her name? Oh, man, this is like the one character I didn't write down. To Paul. To Paul, like my favorite character. Uh, <laughs> So T'Pol is still there working, but it's very much like she is part of a race that everybody hates and she's, you know, viewed as less than and uh, is constantly just like ridiculed for being a Vulcan, which kind of actually happens in the Prime Universe, but it's just way more overt. You know, sex is still a big deal. People are still uh, really evil. So she and Trip have hooked up in this universe, but they also hate each other. Oh, ah. Hate fucking. Yeah, and Hoshi is the big femme fatale. Mm. You, you've touched on it a little bit, but, like, it is important to emphasize that in the mirror universe, people are hypersexual. Yeah. Compared to our version of the universe um or at least like what's portrayed on camera 
And so that's that's like the main focus of what we're going to be talking about today. So it's important to know that that is true. Everything from like women show a lot of skin to like who like Sulu's like heavily hitting on Uhura in like their very first scene in the mirror universe. Still no interest, Uhura. Hmm? I could change your mind. You are away from your post, Mister. Is the captain here? Is Spock here? When the cat's away. Yes. There's a concept of a captain's woman, like a, you know, a courtesan or whatever. Mistress. Yeah, which is which is the role that Hoshi plays in in the Enterprise episodes. And like the one thing I will note about the Enterprise episodes is it's interesting because it doesn't feature our universe at all, or our universe characters at all. Like the premise is that we start with the Mirror Enterprise, and they have some sort of I think wormhole accident or something that brings them into the future to our universe where they find um, the defiant, I think. I oh, don't yeah, know. right. Where, where they find a prime universe ship in TOS times and learn about what's happened in our universe but our, you know, Archer, our Hoshi, our T'Pol never show up at all. It's only following the narrative of the mirror universe as they come to our universe and back to theirs. Mm-hmm. And that's the only time in the Trek, like, TV canon that they do do it that way. Like, yes. every other time we get our universe characters in the mirror universe or interacting with people from the mirror universe. Right. Um, which I think is part of the reason that I didn't really click in with those episodes when I watched them in Enterprise because I'm like I find it less interesting to see what Terrans are doing in Terran universe versus what like Earthlings are doing or what our universe people are doing in that kind of fish out of water everything's upside down situation yeah we talked about what happens in Deep Space Nine right that it's just uh, it's focused on the Earthlings the Terrans trying to get their rights we talked about how, like, Spock started this movement that pacified the Terran Empire. And then by the time we get to Deep Space Nine, they've been pacified to the extent that this alliance that had set itself up in opposition to the Terran Empire, like, enslaves the Terrans. Um, and so we we arrive at Terok Nor in the Mirror Universe, a.k.a. Deep Space Nine, and um, there's... There's humans who are doing the ore processing. They encounter Mirror Universe Kira, who's just this. She's she's the intendant of Terok Nor. She's a very engrossing character in that setting. We meet her when so in the first episode in Deep Space Nine, where we. Where we go to the mirror universe, the people from from our Deep Space Nine who are there are Kira and Bashir. Kira doesn't understand why she's being given obeisance from like the rest of the people that she encounters in this universe until Intendant Kira walks in 
in her pleather and leather, like, sexy dominatrix bodysuit slash harness <laughs> and is, like, immediately enraptured with this alternate version of herself. Before I talk too much longer, tell me what, like, how would you describe Intendant Gira? So first I wanted to say that her outfit is kind of like this pewter silver kind of thing. And she's also got this really cool headband on. Oh, yeah. The headband is awesome. And um, as somebody who's had short hair a lot, I love when women wear short hair, like, with accessories. It's, like, so hot. It's very cool. Um, (laughs) She kind of looks like... um, like Zool from Ghostbusters or <laughs> or David Bowie. It's yeah, yeah. I don't know, she's quixotic, she's flirtatious, she's playful and uh she's definitely evil. Mhm. And um yeah, she's probably bisexual or at least queer as people are prone to saying especially people who don't want to say bisexual (laughs) and uh we we know this because we see her have sexual encounters with men including captain cisco and we see her uh with women surrounding her and uh clearly flirting with herself with major kira yeah yes so she's almost immediately like ooh. (laughs) this is my new toy about major kira and there's a lot of scenes with her in her bed chamber Mm -hmm. surrounded by half naked men and women being fed grapes and taking a milk bath and (laughs) like you know doing all of these kind of activities that symbolize somebody who has an opulent lifestyle who has, like, people at her beck and call who may or may not be slaves. Mm-hmm. And she's, like, very overtly sexual. Mm-hmm. Um, there's there's a particular scene where she's taking a bath and then Major Kira comes into her bedchamber and she like she, like, gets out of the bath while having... Um, while having a meeting with her alternate universe counterpart and it falls into this what I swear to God is a trope and I'm going to come up with some kind of name for it which is like powerful evil lady villain gets dressed (laughs) while having an important business meeting (laughs) which is too many words for a TV tropes trope entry (laughs) Yeah, and I think we've discussed this on a, on another podcast. Yeah, so it's not the only time that it happens because it happens at least twice in Star Trek and in other places not in Star Trek. So I'm I'm going to like, I don't know, maybe it's a life goal of mine to make this TV tropes entry and come up with some kind of name for it. Do or it already it. exists and I just don't know what it's called. Nevertheless, it's heavily implied, or, and it's not even heavily implied, it's just overtly shown to us that she is a woman with strong sexual desire who flaunts that to everybody that she encounters. Delectable. 
And so are you. Enter. Mr. Garrick said you wanted to see me. Yes. Come. Join us. Yeah, which... <sighs> so... I'm curious, because, like, I feel like there are two ways that you can react to Major Kira, or that I even react, or to, to Intendant Kira, that I personally react to Intendant Kira, and uh, I have a similar reaction to uh, Philippa Giorgio, to Emperor Philippa Giorgio, uh, is a little bit similar to my reaction to Stargate, in that I have both a negative and a positive reaction to this. So I'm, I'm curious, like, how do you, before I kind of go into that, like, how do you feel about her? Yeah. I mean, I love her and I hate her. Mm -hmm. Like, she's, she's this powerful woman who's, like, living her truth when it comes to sex and sexuality. But she's also an enslaver. Mm -hmm. And it is unclear that any of her sexual partners have actual agency. Mm -hmm. She's also a representation of not only like the evil bisexual trope, but also the evil kinkster trope. Yeah. I mean, I feel a, a similar kind of way. Like, I think it's ex it becomes exciting to see a bisexual character on TV. And it is fun to have evil characters who are likable. It is fun to have villains who you enjoy, who you're like, oh, I kind of like you personally because you're funny and you're playful and you're entertaining on screen, even if we hate you, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and there's like a ton of examples from, I mean, like one example is even like Darth Vader, who's like not yeah. funny, but people love him even though he's evil and they hate him, right? Mm -hmm. And Intendant Kira is definitely one of those. Oh, absolutely. The problem becomes when every time you see a bisexual character, they're a likable evil character, or every time you see a kinky woman, she's a likable evil character. Mm -hmm. And for both of these things, that is definitely the case, especially in TV. We've we've talked before on on other podcasts about like the queer villain trope, mm -hmm. like Hades in in Disney. A lot of uh, or, or almost all of the Disney villains, almost all are, the like, Disney queer coded villains. in some way. Yeah, um, Scar. <laughs> yeah, uh, Ursula. Yeah. Exactly. Jafar, even. Yeah, over time, that's kind of faded, because, like, people have seen that that's inappropriate, mm -hmm. and that the it shouldn't be the only time that we see gay characters. That's definitely happened with Star Trek, right? Like, we have positive gay characters in Star Trek, and now we have positive trans and non-binary characters in Star Trek. But that hasn't happened as much with bisexual characters, and it hasn't happened at all with kinky characters. Glad this is from like 2015 and like 2017, but like Glad found that like 28% of TV queer characters are bisexual, whereas in real life 40% of queers are bisexual. So uh, it's a much smaller percentage, and of those characters, most of them are bad guys. Yes. And they noted a bunch of traits that uh, are negative stereotypes of bisexuals that show up in TV, 
um, bisexual characters are often untrustworthy, um, engage in infidelity, are lacking in morality, use sex as manipulation. Um, and one article I found actually says it really, really well. Uh, where'd it go? Where did you go, my lovely? Okay. <laughs> Quote, <laughs> uh, many bisexual TV characters lack a moral compass. They exploit their own sexuality as a means to get ahead. They're also unabashedly shameless in their actions, never having an ounce of remorse. It is as if, for those fictional bisexual characters, sexual fluidity equals moral fluidity. Mm-hmm. Yes. In, in this regard, sexuality is not seen even as an identity, but rather as a personality trait. And this is from Zachary Zane. The article's called uh, TV Producers Stop Portraying Bisexuals as Villains, and we'll link to that. <laughs> um, and I would go on to say, like, the same is, is of kinky or kink coded characters mm -hmm. and i think and we i even came up with a list of like recent bisexual characters on tv who are evil yeah. uh frank underwood from house of cards is bisexual i think he's also kinky villanelle from killing eve which i've also only seen one season of i enjoyed that season but i eventually was just like oh this is a gross depiction of bisexual women i want to stop she's a literal serial killer and her name is Villanelle. Yeah. Like, it's yes. not subtle. No. Um, Lady Gaga in American Horror Story, where she's a literal vampire. Uh. Oh, man. There are others. There are many, many others. Um, but definitely in Star Trek, the only time we ever see bisexual characters is when they are in the mirror universe. Yeah. And they're like, by virtue of being the mirror universe, they're like, by, defini by definition, evil. There's such a reflection in the culture about, especially like what you were saying, the morally, morally bankrupt and like using sex to manipulate and like in not faithful to their sexual partners. Like all of these things are things that people believe to be true about bisexuals specifically. Yes. Yeah. I mean, uh, bisexuals are a group of people and I would venture to say pansexuals, but there's less data on this because the term has been around less long. Bisexuals are a group of people who are uh, discriminated against both by the straight community and by the LGBT community. They are disproportionately among LGBT people likely to be depressed, uh, have mental health issues, be suicidal. They are less likely to be out in their everyday lives. Um, and uh, yeah, a, a big part of it is because of these negative uh, stereotypes. I mean, I think I don't think I've actually said this in this episode yet. If it's not obvious, like I am bisexual. <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, my life experience as an out bisexual person is that a lot of people come out to me as bisexual quietly. 
Mm-hmm. Both people yes, who's, bisexual erasure is huge. Yeah, both people who are straight and people who are gay have confided in me that they are actually bi, but like it's not their preference and it's not really worth living out. I mean, I think it's kind of wild. I mean, especially in a monogamous presumptive culture, like being bisexual is almost automatically like you're a bad person because you're you're either in a monogamous relationship and you're like not dating a person of multiple you're not dating people of multiple genders and so your bisexuality just like disappears yeah or it's invalid or you're not being truthful right in some way yeah, there, it just feels like there's this, like, huge pressure to be just, like, choose one side or the other. Like, stop sitting on the fence. And it's just like, no, that's... I think, yeah. you know, then, then maybe this is a little bit of a tangent. But I also think, like, the fact of bisexuality is at least part of the basis that people, like, point to gayness being a choice. Because, mm-hmm. like, I think there are a lot of people... I think that most people are at least a little bit bisexual. Yeah, and and that that is like an another popular perspective and then people will go on to say like, "Oh, but then so like why label it?" And so there's this resistance even if you believe in bisexuality to to owning it and calling it that. Yeah. No, it's it's all messed up and it is not it is not aided by this trope, this pretty consistent way that bisexuals are portrayed to being to being the untrustworthy evil people who manipulate and who like you know go behind their partner's backs or whatever um or they run an entire empire that is based on conquest and destruction of other cultures in the case of Emperor Giorgio um and, like, we know – so I think Discovery does a couple things with the Mirror Universe that are quite positive. They really dial back the, the like, everybody's overtly sexy. Mm-hmm. But we also know because, like, because she's spoken it that Giorgio is uh, – into group sex at the very least like there's a clip i'll put in here where she talks about having sex with um stamets and culber together you are savvier than he was um you you do know that he's gay right don't be so binary in my universe he was pansexual and we had defcon level fun together and you too poppy did you just call me poppy well, in my universe, and pretty much any universe I can possibly imagine, I'm gay, and so is he. Of course you are. I'm glad we all see what's right in front of us. And now, if you'll excuse me, I need to talk to Captain Pike about setting a course for Esau Paul. From that clip, I think what's one thing that's interesting is Stamets is like, well, I'm gay in this universe, and in every other universe version of me that I can imagine, I'm still gay, which <laughs> just feels very small-minded of him. Yeah. <laughs> um, but then again, he was being 
kind of hit on by somebody who finds who he finds intimidating and also not sexually attractive. So, um, nevertheless, we know that she and there's another scene that we I I played a clip from in in the episode where we talked about Riza, um, where she's like shown as having just finished having an encounter with a male and a female sex worker. Um, so she's like very canonically bi or pan. Yeah. Can we just put a pin in that for a second? So I just want to say two things. So like one, I'm sure that some of the, the pushback we might get from listeners is like that, uh, the, I, this, there's, I just, I hate that I have to say this, but I just don't want to deal with it later. Is there's this idea that, um, the label bisexual is inherently transphobic, um, because people think it means that you're attracted to men and women and there's an erasure of non-binary people um, or that it means that you're only attracted to, for some reason, cis men and cis women, um, which I don't I don't really get where that comes from. But OK. Um, anyway, that's it, that's kind of a myth, like being bisexual means that you're kind of both gay and straight that you're attracted to the, the same gender as yourself and other genders as from yourself so that's the the binary um the same as you and not the same as you and it's right. not necessarily reinforcing the gender binary there are meaningful differences beyond that myth between bisexuality and pansexuality um bisexuals tend to say that like they are attracted to many genders. Pansexuals tend to say that they are attracted to people in spite of their gender. Huh. Oh, okay. Like that they're attracted to individuals and that it doesn't matter to them what the gender is, whereas bisexuals tend to acknowledge that they are attracted to the gender presentation of the people that they're attracted to. Um, That being said, there's a lot of overlap, and I think that a lot of the the evil bisexual tropes in TV and media are now being applied to pansexuals as well as we can see um, with Paul Stamets uh, because his mirror universe character who is pan is also kind of an evil dude. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, no, he is an evil dude. He's like, he in he's working on inventing some kind of like terrible biological weapon it's his science that makes the um that ship the Charon with its like mycelial network consuming engine mm-hmm. that's going to destroy all of the universes everywhere that he like that's his invention um and he's also the character that we see who's like trying to play both sides right. of the conflict, <laughs> like the the rebellion that Lorca's leading versus Emperor Giorgio. He's like trying to be on both sides of that. Yeah. So now looking at Paul Stamets, uh, mirror Paul Stamets, mirror Emperor Philippa Giorgio, and mirror Intendant Kira, we can check off the glad list, <laughs> untrustworthy. Lacking in morality, using sex as manipulation. Yep. They're all doing it. And it's just so plain and like... Uh, what's the word for when you're a writer and you do something... Lazy? That, 
lazy. Yeah, it's kind of lazy writing. <laughs> it's just like not Obvious. creative. Yeah. Yes. Cliche. All of those things. It's not working on like developing people as characters so much as just like relying on assumptions from the audience. All of that being said, I enjoy these characters and they're kind of fun and I'm glad they're here. It's just disappointing that they're the only ones that are here. Right? Yeah. So it's hard for me to be like, oh man, I kind of love Emperor Giorgio. But like, why? Like, maybe Tilly could be bisexual or like just somebody who's just like really, really pure, you know? Yeah. I <laughs> like, wonder. But you know? I feel like Tilly might be bisexual. I don't think it's canon, but it like feels like she is. She has some <laughs> queer vibes. She's yeah. got a little bit of queer vibes. Yeah. 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 But no, but like what you're saying is like, they, like, they all. They they are all born from this universe that we're that we are explicitly told is like the evil version of our universe. Mm -hmm. So they're not only like characteristically evil, they're like biologically evil. Yeah, <laughs> you know it's it kind of sucks. And and the other thing about it that that kind of upsets me is that it's not just that they're bisexual, but that they're they are overtly sexual so like mm -hmm. they're put into this position of in contrast the kind of like chaste modest whatever like our universe they're the licentious oversexed like constantly horny people and it's like placed along other other types of evil or other like broken commandments like gluttony yes. and just like hedonism and like taking baths and like wearing <laughs> sexy and like vanity wearing attractive yes. clothing and um narcissism yeah absolutely i mean like absolutely all of those things and so it's it's placing sexuality itself in this context of only done like out in the open by people who are evil mm -hmm. um and something that i found really interesting like in this rewatch is that the the terrans and then the alliance are both like the terran empire and then the alliance are both very fascist regimes mm. and when they are the regimes that are in power they are also very sexual. I'm not gonna. I'm not like. I hesitate to word use the word sexually liberated, because there's still a lot of implication of like coercive sex and mm -hmm. sex for power and like all of that. But they're more sex. They're they're just sexier. Whereas what we know about fascism in reality is that it's almost always coupled with a forced modesty mm -hmm. with a like pushing down of your of human sexuality into the space of like reproductive only between man and woman like very not the way that it's portrayed in the mirror universe where they're like deeply linked yeah so it's like not only lazy writing but like a mistake about how fascism works <laughs> yeah and i have um i have two thoughts about that like one thought uh that I have is that this is born out of um, it being an American written television series 
and our Puritan roots. So everything evil is just there together. You know, it's like fascism is evil. Cool. But like also all the evil shit from the Bible, like sex and gluttony and narcissism and murder and all that stuff is just is just there. And, you know, we are a, a country that was founded by Puritans. And even if you're not Christian or even if you're not uh, uh you are Christian, but you're you're not Protestant. You know, it's that still very much permeates our our culture, um, and so shows up in our writing in in ways that just that don't make sense. Right. Um, my other thought is that really all we see of the mirror universe is uh, what's going on with those in power and those in the military, and we don't really know what's going on with the civilian population, and that occurred to me just now as, like, kind of, like, some world building, and we do know that there's often a lot of um, hypocrisy exercised by those in leadership positions, Mm. right? Mm. So it could be, like, the leaders get to be really sexy, uh, and do whatever they want, but like the the populace doesn't have sexual freedom. Yeah, that's totally plausible. I could buy that for sure. But again, I'm just making that up. We have no evidence of that. <laughs> okay, I have a question for you. Uh huh. Did we talk about how Mirror Giorgio is kinky yet? Not really. I think we alluded to it a little bit, but Mirror Giorgio. So. Let's see. What are the list of things that make it appear as though she is kinky? Um, number one, top of the list, dressed in leather like all the time. Yeah, literally everything she wears. <laughs> Black leather with studs and like allusions to harnesses. Meanwhile, Kira has a literal harness that she wears. Um there's that scene with the with the pair of sex workers where they're like, oh, you have taught us things, <laughs> implying that she has revealed to them some kinky secrets because, like, what else would there be? <laughs> what are what else? Why else do you think she's kinky? Uh, hmm. Does she have a whip at any point in time? She has she gives the it's, energy of carrying a whip. It feels like she has a whip. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I mean, and I I think that this is this is an area where we might be like reverse projecting, like because she is a dominating, forceful um, female character in terms of her personality, we are projecting that onto her sexuality. But that paired with all the visual elements that she carries with her, you're like, okay, yeah, probably if you are a little literal emperor who's ordering people around in real life, you probably order people around in the bedroom. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's just like all over her characterization, this feeling that like she's like got naked people kissing her feet on a regular basis. For sure. (laughs) Yeah. In a sexual way. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And then, like, other other things that feel kinky about the mirror universe, like the the agonizer itself feels a little kinky. Um, There's, like, a lot of knives. I wanted to tell you something. Sorry. So so you could look, maybe you could find this clip, but... 
at the beginning of the Enterprise episode, when they're introducing the Agonizer, there's like a a general or somebody, somebody else is the captain. There's another guy there who's not Archer, and he's questioning it. He's like, what's wrong with a good old-fashioned flogging? Like, why do we need this? <laughs> and then... Uh, the explanation goes into something about like nerve clusters and like becoming numb to certain pain and like needing to switch up like where the pain is activated that way you, you know it's it's you still feel the sensation and i was just like huh okay mm-hmm. i Same have questions spot. about who is in the writers room for enterprise yeah <laughs> right somebody's been a little bit too long thinking about this Yes. Further evidence that the, the agonizer is, is kinky. Although, I don't know. I mean, it's a literal torture device. So, as kinksters, we do employ literal torture devices for fun. So, there's probably a subset of people in the mirror universe who just like recreationally use the agonizer. I mean, there, uh, there, there must be. There must be. The reason that. I think you asked that question is that we talked a lot about not only like the queerness of these villains, but also the kink of these villains and the interrelatedness of kink and queerness. Mm-hmm. So I am kinky. And as a kinky person, I look out for ways in which kink is kink and BDSM, like those, I kind of use those two terms interchangeably, um, show up in cinema, television, and specifically in Star Trek. I think that this is where it shows up. Like, we get the idea that these people are not just, like, generally sexually open, more open than we are, but, like, are kinky. Um, enjoy like inflicting pain on others, enjoy potentially receiving pain themselves as a um, as an aspect of their sexuality. There's a there's a strong link between queerness and kink. Like something that came up for me and the, and for you too, I think you were following this is when is there's a conversation now about should kink, should like overt displays of kink be part of the pride celebrations or pride parades demonstrations um, where like this used to be not a question at all because like there's a huge subset of like the gay and LGBT culture that is kink. Um, But kink is also practiced by people who are ostensibly straight. Yeah, Um, Like isn't one of the guys in the village people wearing leather yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah, like leather culture specifically, historically, mm-hmm. has been represented in visually totally. in gay culture. Yeah. So where, like, where the line between the two of those things is is very blurry. Something that I noticed not not in Star Trek at all, but I just watched this episode of from the most recent season of Rick and Morty. So spoiler alert here: if you're behind on Rick and Morty, there's an episode where. Uh, Rick has, like, has his, not quite friends, but people who he owes a favor, who are demons from hell, like, show up, and 
being demons from hell, they are absolutely embodying this like kink aesthetic. And there's explicit conversation about pain being pleasurable and like they're they're portrayed as being like kind of very confused and also quite stupid because <laughs> of their like association of between pleasure and pain and like if it's good then it's bad if it's bad then it's good it's like they they like can't really figure out where they land on this but but they're all dressed in leather and harnesses and like with knives sticking out of them and like it's so overtly kinky but Mm. not at all overtly queer like whether or not they're engaging in sex with people of the opposite sex or their own sex or some other sex, like, is it part of the conversation at all? But this, this kinkiness is like their primary characterization. Mm -hmm. So to me, what that kind of conveys is like, as we are on this trajectory of First, like, female sexuality is villainized, and then it kind of becomes okay, and then, like, queer sexuality is villainized, and it's, or or gay and lesbian villainy specifically are villainized, and now they're kind of becoming okay, and, like, we're left with bisexuals, yeah, and trans people. I I just want to say there's also trans, especially, um, especially trans women being uh, overtly evil in media and and then that not being okay like that's right. also been a trajectory yeah so so we're we're on these kind of trajectories and like where it seems like we are today is we can still use kink to represent literal hell demons <laughs> but all of the gay shit all of the lgbt shit is like not there anymore right um and we're also in this cultural conversation about, like, is kink okay in a celebration of LGBTQ existence? Yeah, and, and the argument, right, is, like, what about the children? And it's, like, whatever the argument is, what about the children? You know you're losing, I think. Right. <laughs> it's just, like, they're either talking, they're not going to get it. Or they might, and they might end up with a kink in their lives, and, like, that's okay. As long as you don't fall... As long as you don't get hoodwinked by this belief that people who are kinky are inherently broken, actually being kinky and, like, living that as part of your truth is... I have found an access to, like, greater feelings of being integrated and whole and fully self-expressed. I also just want to, I feel like this has been uh, kind of in our conversation, but also not as overt, a little bit absent from it. Um, I also just want to say like versions of, of polyamory and non-monogamy um, are also, it also still seems like okay to knock. Yeah. And, and also present in the Star Trek world, like all of these characters all of these characters that we've talked about. Yeah, um, they definitely seem to be at least engaging in group sex. Mm-hmm. If not multiple, like, committed romantic relationships or... Yeah, maybe not multiple committed partners. romantic relationships, but at least, like, multiple casual romantic relationships. Mm-hmm. Exactly. 
Yeah, no, you're totally right about that. I think there's, uh, you know, I think part if, if I, I can be a little bit kind to writers here and like like people who do visual storytelling, like the leather aesthetic, the kink aesthetic, like fetish wear is fun to look at. Yeah. <laughs> and it's fun to wear. <laughs> and it's like, you know, you can say something quite loudly without any words at all if you put a harness on or if you put a whip in somebody's hand or if you like use knives in such a way or like other other kind of playing around with different versions of kinkiness I do like seeing it like part of the reason that I love being a gangster is I like I like corsets and like I like yeah, no, and, and non-kinky people like seeing these things, too, or they wouldn't be used. Right. Because they are visually interesting and sexy. Um, that being said, I don't think they're always used in a smart way. Like, why is Intendant Kira wearing a harness when she's the one in power? Stuff like that. It's a good question. I mean, like, I Maybe think she just likes her harness. She she could just like her harness, but there's also like when when the kink aesthetic is uh, like taken up in like mainstream culture, the meaning that's behind it gets totally washed away. Uh, there's a there's a Netflix TV show that I highly recommend. It's called Bonding, um, but in the first season, there's a like the the main character is a dominatrix, um, and in the first season she's seen as wearing a collar, um, and then in the second season, I believe because like fans wrote in and said like, "Hey, this isn't right," <laughs> like you you got you, you she looks she looks hot, but you got this wrong. Like she is schooled by another dominatrix about huh. wearing the collar. That's nice that they gave it an. An in-universe Yeah, no, so it totally works. It works for her characterization. It works in this show. Um, she also she also is terrible at tying rope in the first season. And then she gets like she goes to a rope tying class in the second season. So like people people understood what they did wrong and like yeah. repaired it in a way that makes sense is in like internally consistent. But that's I good. think it's a good, it's a really good evidence that even like, even a show that's celebrating kink can mess, can make mistakes about the symbology of what like fetish wear means mm-hmm. and what, what I like can very easily recognize as, as like conveying some set of meaning. Did you want me to say anything about Hoshi? Oh, yeah. Talk a little bit about Hoshi. Just kind of because we're covering the the malignment of sexuality in the Mirror Universe, I just wanted to talk a little bit about Mirror Hoshi Sato in Enterprise. Um, Her major plot points, she's like a captain's woman, and... uh, Captain Archer is, like, not a captain, and then he becomes the captain, and so she switches. He's now her lover because... Because he's captain she's now? She's aligned. He's cap- Yeah, and she's aligning. It's not like she's property, but, like, she's aligning herself with whoever's in power. But she literally tries to stab him. 
And then uh, when that doesn't go over well, she has sex with him. Um, she then seduces Mayweather, who's like his personal guard, and kills him. Oh. <laughs> and uh, upon killing him, she then returns to Earth, returns to their proper time and proper universe, and declares herself Empress Sato with the uh, with the better technology that they stole from our universe from the future. And so, so a few things. So, like, one, even in, like, the 15 or 20 years between Discovery and Enterprise, they go from saying Empress to Emperor for a female Emperor. Mm -hmm. Two, her rise to power is completely tied to her sexuality. And she's a femme fatale. Uh, which or a spider woman, which is a uh, term that used to be used a lot in film criticism and then kind of fell out of favor as now there's a character called spider woman, but it's just another term for a femme fatale. <laughs> uh, the characteristics of the femme fatale are that she's uh, promiscuous, exciting, intelligent, narcissistic, sexual and manipulative, which yeah, like what does that sound like? It, it sounds like the evil bisexual or the evil pansexual. Um and it's kind of it's in the tradition of these uh, these women who were the antagonists or the bad guys who would seduce the protagonists in these old film noir movies where there was usually two women. There was the evil woman and then there was the good woman. And the protagonist had to work out his own moral struggle by like choosing the correct woman. Probably getting to at least make out with both. Oh, oh, for sure. For sure. <laughs> and this is like in the 1940s, 1950s and kind of like, um, you know, moves through the 60s. We, we see it again and again, but like that's its uh, origin in cinema. Um, definitely Hoshi. There's also something kind of problematic that uh, both evil mirror female emperors are Asian women. Mm. That's mm. some whole yeah. other shit. Um, and probably ties into how Asian women are often uh, sexualized in media more so than white women. Like, uh, you know, like the comfort woman. Yeah, it's such an interesting because there's that there's kind of a dichotomy like Asian women are hypersexualized and like thought of like, like probably the very the page act, which is perhaps the first um piece of legislation explicitly like barring people from immigrating based on their ethnicity or their nationality was to prevent Asian women from emigrating Chinese women um, because they were thought to all be prostitutes. Mm -hmm. And so there's that, but then there's also this like Asian women are meek and submissive yeah, so it's kind of turning that on its head, but still, like, plays into this idea that, like, Asian women are often sexualized or hypersexualized or are seen as sexual objects in media, in, in white media. Yeah, no, that's very present, and it's good to note. Yeah, there's, there's all of that. Um, but, I mean, you said something while we were talking about this in advance. I was like, does... Do you think this stuff with Hoshi fits into this episode that's mostly focused on uh, like queerness and bisexuality and and kink 
in the mirror universe, and you said it did. Yeah, so it does in in this way. So this femme fatale trope, while it while it like specifically grows out of film noir, it's been present for much longer than that. Mm-hmm. Like any basically any woman claiming sexual agency or being sexually dominating is demonized. Mm-hmm. That like that exists first. And then like the way that queer villainy and queer coded villains show up is by having feminine characteristics. Mm-hmm. So the one, you know, the one grows the other, right? Yeah. And they're they're really just kind of in my opinion, and I think that, you know, I think that if I were to do some kind of academic analysis of this, I could prove it pretty strongly that they're just they're expressions of the same misogyny at mm-hmm. their root. And like to paraphrase Dan Savage, homophobia is the younger sibling of misogyny. Yeah. For sure. For sure. Yeah. And it's um it's deeply tied to misogyny and like this idea that any kind of like gender expression or gender role expression from other men um, being outside of the masculine ideal is a threat to masculine supremacy. Yeah. Absolutely. If you build a culture where it is where femininity is lower on the hierarchy, anyone, no matter their gender, who is in some way performing femininity, Mm -hmm. therefore is, like, subverting that hierarchy and a threat to the hierarchy. Yeah, and and so, like, going back to kink and uh, going back to Intendant Kira and uh, Emperor Georgiou, um, the idea that a woman who is a dominatrix or sexually dominant or kinky dominant um, it is a feminine person exhibiting power, not just exhibiting power in their sexuality like uh, Hoshi, but this super overt expression of, of sexual power upends that dichotomy where masculinity is always on top. And it I mean, it's one of the reasons why uh, submissive, kinky, masculine men in pop culture are always a punchline. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So, I mean, I anyway. think I, it's very... To me, that's it's how the world obvious. works, you guys. <laughs> how things show up, how we get, how we get the mirror universe is like supposed to, you know, it's supposed to be a flipped on its head version of our reality, and so it makes sense when you're like, how do we put on our on its head this version of our reality? Oh, we can have a sexually dominant woman in power. Mm-hmm. Yep, it's very <laughs> straightforward. <laughs> Uh, once again, perhaps lazy writing. (laughs) Opposite land. It's like, try harder to make your world full of evil people evil. Um, But I love the mirror mirror universe. I like, despite being... 
Again, upset that by tension. these tropes. I love right. it. <laughs> Again, that tension where it's like it's fun and it, it's showing things that we like, you know, like you're like, oh, cool, a kinky character. I'm like, oh, cool, a bisexual character. And like this fun display of sexuality, it's enjoyable and we like it. It's just like if it weren't the only way it shows up, it wouldn't be as problematic and we wouldn't yeah. have to object to it. Right. Which is basically the entire thesis of, like, representation matters. Like, mm -hmm. it's upsetting, but I also want it to be there. Like, it would be worse if it wasn't there at all. Which I think is probably concludes our conversation. <laughs> there we go. But don't worry, we're not done talking about queerness. We are going to follow this up with a deep dive into the queerness of Q. Yes. Oh, I forgot about that. I was like, wait, what are we doing next? <laughs> Mom brain. Yeah. In anticipation of Q being in the next season of Star Trek Picard, we're going to like take him on. Right on. Until then. Until then. Live long and prosper. Peace and long life. Intertractional is a production of Federation and Fempire, written and produced by Ryan Ascalese and Becca Motola Barnes. Original music by Danny Kavka. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Intertractional. We want to hear from you. Join our Facebook group to discuss this episode with us and other fans. Email us at intertractional at gmail.com. You can even send us a voice memo. Visit our website at intertractional.com for show notes, images, and citations. Intertractional is available on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts. If you like this podcast, you can help others find it by taking a moment to rate and review us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. It really, really helps. You can donate to us at paypal.me slash Federation and Fempire, or you can become a member of our member feed on PodFan. That is pod.fan slash Intertractional. <laughs> It's timelines, mirror universes, who's us, who's we, whatever.